Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome everyone to a Baseball America podcast. Along with J.J. Cooper, I'm John Manuel. It's our first podcast of 2015. Thanks everybody for joining us. Thanks for the download. Of course, uh, for future podcasts, you can always uh, send us questions at podcast at baseballamerica.com. I actually do still check that email address. Or you can tweet at us. He's at JJCoop36. I'm at John Manuel BA. Uh, JJ, we're recording this on the morning of the Hall of Fame vote. The Hall of Fame uh, is voted on. This part of it is voted on by the Baseball Writers Association of America. And during the winter meetings, you and I were both uh, actually allowed into the Baseball Writers Association of America for the first time, Yay. along with our, uh, our peer, Ben Badler. So a big day for Baseball America back in the winter meetings that uh, we were... Our uh, application was uh, approved for the first time, and so that's a good thing. So we want to thank the Baseball Writers Association of America for allowing us to be members. We're going to be members of the Atlanta chapter. Ben will be a member of the Boston chapter. So that's exciting, and uh, hopefully 10 years from now, you and I will be able to vote for the Hall of Fame. Uh, We're not eligible to vote for the Hall of Fame yet, which is fine, Um, but uh, a lot of people are, and I think a lot of people have read a lot of agonized columns about it and it used to be tiresome, be honest with you, JJ, it used to be tiresome this time of year, some of the Hall of Fame arguments. But honestly, I'm much more compelled the last few years with this glut of players in the ballot. And um, it is a glut. And I even heard two Hall of Fame caliber writers this morning on MLB Network, Peter Gammons and Ken Rosenthal, who I respect immensely, especially Peter. You know, I kind of idolize Peter. And uh, both those guys saying that they would not put in <clears throat> Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. And that's a fundamental place of disagreement for me with those two guys. And um, so I think reasonable people, I guess what I, so I, that's what I want to start off with. Reasonable people can disagree about who should be in the Hall of Fame. And I don't think it means the writers do a terrible job or those guys are right or wrong. It's not, it's like ranking prospects in a way, JJ. It's not so cut and dried always. Right. There, there's diff, there's obviously different viewpoints. There are very adamantly held different viewpoints. That are legit. Right. Some right. of them are not. That's right. the agonizing well, ones. And, I, and then you throw into this, which is, is that, and then as you talk about this glut, then there is the somewhat artificial constructs that limit this debate. Because on one end, you have the people who say, I'm not voting for suspected PED users, which is a viewpoint. On the other end... You have people who say, "I am. I'm voting based on what I, you know, what happened on the field and whether PEDs or not." But with those voters, there's a second limit, which is if we talk about the glut. You can only vote for ten. Right now, if you are willing to vote for people who are suspected or were proven to have taken PEDs, I don't think that there's. I don't care how restrictive you are in your viewpoint of the Hall of Fame and how restrictive it should be as far as the elite level that you have to reach, there are more than 10 candidates. Yeah, if there were yeah, if there were no limit, I mean, Rafael Palmeiro would have been in a couple of years ago. I mean, even though he was suspended for PED use, 3,000 hits and 500 home runs, those are pretty big milestones. I mean, even if you're just going to put him in from a he was very good for a very long time kind of way to go, 
I, you know, I think he gets in. So to, I think, J.J., as we start this discussion, I, I completely agree with you. I think the 10 is an artificial limit that should not exist. Um, but in general, I think when you look at the history, uh, first, a couple of foundational points. First off, we both have read the Bill James um, what it, book, the Whatever Happened to the Hall of Fame. Which was changed the politics yes. of glory in the paperback edition. My, yes. Mine, which my, my, at the time, roommate's dog, Roxy, which I now have a dog named Roxy. <laughs> But my roommate's dog, Roxy, Josh's dog, ate my the copy, but I still have it. There are pieces of pages missing, but I have my uh, copy of whatever happened to the Hall of Fame. I think mine's called The Politics of Glory, yeah. and it, it's paperback. It's a, it's a, it's yeah, a book sale. Yeah. It's a book sale uh, purchase that's yeah. like five bucks as a resale, and I was very excited to find that book. But that informs, I think, both of our thinking on the Hall of Fame in a significant way. In that I think there are multiple kinds of Hall of Famers. I think there's the what I would call like a, a Don Sutton type of Hall of Famer, which is being good for a very long time. Mm-hmm. To me, that's good enough to be right. a Hall of Famer. I don't have a problem with Don Sutton peak in the Hall of Famer. Peak value, career value. And there's peak value Hall of Famers, exactly. Sandy Koufax is a peak value Hall of Famer who does not have the career longevity that you would basically say that generally a, a player needs to be in the Hall of Fame. Right. But you were so good at your best. You were the best player in the game. That or we close were, to it. Right. And I think Kofax's case, he was, I mean, right. like the best in the game. When that's the case, we're gonna we're willing to basically overlook the length of your career because you were so good. Yes, there's some. Yeah, you have to have a pretty significant be, peak. Right, and the thing about it is, is we've seen this. Like Roger Maris didn't get in because of like you can't have a three-year peak. A three-year Don, peak. Don Mattingly, right. a perfect short peak was too short kind of player uh, for a, a Hall of Famer. But so on this year's ballot, which is a huge ballot, we've got uh, we've got some all-time inner circle Hall of Famers. Mm-hmm. For me, Randy Johnson and Pedro Martinez are inner circle. All-time elite, just like Hall of Fame, just like last year when we had Greg Maddox, who is yeah, you know. inner circle, and I would say Frank Thomas was close to that. He's one of the all-time and, best first basemen. And we'll we'll get to this debate later, but depending on your viewpoint, we have two guys, two other guys on this ballot who are you know, but we'll get to that debate later with Roger Clemens and Ray Bonds. I want to start with the easy yeah. ones, which are Pedro Martinez and Randy Johnson. To me, Pedro Martinez is almost like a blend of Sandy Koufax. He's Sandy Koufax with a similar peak and a longer career. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed. And to, and, and to me, if those two guys, I mean, the only reason they shouldn't be on your ballot for me is if you do like Mike Berardino did and leave them off so you can get other guys on because you know the other people are going to vote for them, which I, I don't know if I have the guts to do the strategic ballot like Mike Berardino did, but reading Mike's explanation of it, I respected Mike's ballot quite a bit, and I wouldn't have done it. But I respect the fact that he did it. I, I I enjoy that, but more than the I'm not voting for him because if Joe DiMaggio wasn't a first ballot unanimous Hall of Famer, then I'm not making this guy unanimous. I don't that know how I many I don't know how many of those writers or voters are left. This is like, it feels like they're fewer now than there used to be. Right, but now because of the glut, you have those being replaced by the well. But I this is my last chance to get this guy on. Right, the strategic. Ba- so we both voted Johnson and Clemens. I mean Johnson and, and Martinez pretty easy. Um, I'm just going in alphabetical order of who else we agreed on, because those two were the easy mm-hmm. guys. We both voted for Craig Biggio. What's your quick uh, version of why Craig Biggio? To me, Craig Biggio easily, and again, I'm a rather restrictive. I, I think that the Hall of Fame has a number of players in it who should not be in the Hall of Fame. 
Uh, I think you look at the 1930 Cardinals and go, I mean, it was basically they're having a party, and if you weren't invited from, you know, from that era, it was like, well, he hit 300 too. Well, yes, the entire league hit 300, you know. But um, I, I think that there are, I, and I, what I guess what I'm trying to say is this, I don't think that you determine who gets in the Hall of Fame by saying, well, this guy's in and this guy's better than him, so he has to get in. Because if you keep doing that, and you keep judging it by yeah. the worst guy in the Hall of Fame, then you keep lowering the standards. Agreed I, I feel like I, I, I try to, to me, the standards should be higher than that. To me, whatever standards you have, Craig Biggio meets those standards. I think that, um, I actually think that you can use, the writers can use, like, a, here's the guys that we have voted in historically, and that provides a useful baseline for the writers. Um, the Veterans Committee has let in some pretty substandard candidates. I mean, the writers vote the worst player I can think of in the last 50 years. And we're fortunate at Baseball America to have a partnership with the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. where we do the Baseball America Hall of Fame Almanac. And if, to do this podcast better, honestly, my son should be here because my 10-year-old Alex has memorized that freaking book. <laughs> He's read each of the three editions. He seems like he knows everything about all those players. And uh, I'm stunned by his recall. Maybe I shouldn't be, but I am stunned by his recall. He comes by it naturally. Of these players. He comes by it honestly. But I'm telling you, uh, he would be better on this podcast helping us recall these facts because he's got it. But I can't think of a worse player, and I hate to say he's a worse player. I think Jim Rice is the worst that would be the admission guy. by the Writers Association in a long time. And the late Dick Bresciani was the one who kind of spearheaded Jim Rice getting in. I respect that. Dick was a great guy to talk to, back to talk to about Kid Cobley stuff and Red Sox stuff. And you know, he did his job. He lobbied to get Jim Rice in. So Jim Rice's candidacy actually makes me a, a strong advocate for Larry Walker because Jim Rice is in. Larry Walker was a, not quite a contemporary, but virtually a contemporary. Next generation right after Jim Rice and was a similar offensive player, similar peak, better all-around defensive player. I think Larry Walker gets in eventually or should get in precisely because Jim Rice was voted right. in. So the, and that's and right I, I, get, yeah. I get it that you don't. I, I, yeah. I, I follow you. I'm trying to explain yeah. my logic. But I, I think, by like you said, whether you're a tight, small hall guy or a big hall guy, either way, Bijou gets in. I agree with you. Um, next on our alphabetical list was Barry Bonds. We both put Barry Bonds in. And I want to throw Ken Rosenthal's uh, uh, point at you. Kenny and uh, Peter both voted this morning, uh, both discussed on MLB Network that they would both Neither one voted for Barry Bonds. And Ken Rosenthal's point, I respect Ken Rosenthal greatly. I think he's the best uh, like national writer like uh, that there is out there in the game right now. I think he's the most plugged-in guy. I really enjoy him on Fox's broadcast because he's nuanced and it's not about him. And uh, But he said that just because Bonds and Clemens don't get voted in does not mean they're not in the Hall of Fame. They have artifacts, they're records. They haven't been expunged from the record books. I don't think that argument washes for me. I think that if you have, you have, there are a lot of bad guys in the Hall of Fame. Ty Cobb's in the Hall of Fame. They're just bad, and, and there are a lot of PED users from the 60s in the Hall of Fame. Greenies were PEDs, and it, everything I've read, Hank Aaron used them, Willie Mays used them, pretty much everybody greened up back then. I so I, I just, if I remember in Ball Four, it talked about Mickey right, Mantle using them. Right, so I just, I just don't think the writers should hold it so against. Uh, Clemens and Bonds, if they didn't hold them against those players from the '60s era, so I vote. I would vote them both in. My my thing with Bonds, a couple things. One, even if you are, let's say that you're restrictive about PEDs because you are saying from the standpoint of, well, I'm not going to 
again, there's different levels. There is the the let's do this debate. We'll get you know. There's a there, there's a there's Saturday the, Night Live there's Olympics. The guys. On, there, yeah, there's the pox <laughs> on, but there's the pox on everyone's house, which okay. basically is is that the viewpoint, which to me is is a little bit. Again, I'm not disparaging anyone who has this, but to me, it is impossible to accurately say if there is a whiff of steroids of PEDs. And again, when you say PEDs, you really you know say steroids because amphetamines were not legal from the standpoint of you you know you they were hanging out and they were just you could pop them, but they were not really they were PEDs and they are now banned, much like steroids were illegal to be used, but were used by a lot of players. But if you say, if there's any whiff of steroids, I'm not voting for you. Well, to me, that's difficult because then you are, then you are disparaging players that you really have no way of knowing whether they used them or not. So that's I completely the, agree. that's the absolutionist viewpoint. I'm, I'm not on the absolutionist point. Then, I, I don't quite under, I don't quite get it either for the reasons you stated. Then there is the, okay, let's go a step down from the absolutionist point, which is a step down from that is, is you could, one step down is, is I'm not going to vote for anyone who was proven to use it. I follow that more. Yes. That's a, if you were named in the Mitchell report, if you were suspended, if post then you've come out that you've admitted or you were, <laughs> went to court and right. you said, I didn't know what these things were that I was, Barry Bond's case. <laughs> right. All those things, I understand the logic of that. I, to me, that is a defendable approach. I disagree with it, but it's a defendable approach. Right. It, it's it's more consistent to me than the absolutionist. Right. To put it this oh, way, I saw back acne. Right. Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza. Maybe he did. Right. I can't prove he did. I can't prove he did. Right. But okay. Then there's a step below that, which is is that I'm not going to vote for a PED user if I believe the PEDs were the difference between him being a Hall of Famer and not. And that's the point where, again, and now we do not know, I mean, to, to give an example, we do not know. I That, that to me is defined as the McGuire-Sosa class. The McGuire-Sosa class. But even by that standard to me, like if, you were, if we're talking about Barry Bonds, I have no question to me that Barry Bonds before his head grew to enormous sizes, <laughs> was a Hall of Famer. Correct. The skinny framed 30-30 Barry Bonds, not the 70-10 guy, but the 30-30 Barry Bonds, was one of the best players in the game when yeah. he was a pirate. Before 1997-98, before that, Barry Bonds was already in the on the short list of best left fielders of all time. Mm -hmm. At that time, the short list was Williams, Musial, Ricky Henderson, Barry Bonds. Mm -hmm. That was it. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty... And that's before he started hitting homers at a level, at a rate that yeah. are, that is basically unnatural for a player in the later years of his career. That's a pretty freaking crazy right. good list. And so I, at that point, and this involves the, this list to an extent too, at that point, like there's a lot of clamor for Tim Raines, which I will discuss him later. But if Tim Raines were to get in before Barry Bonds... I'm sorry, PEDs are not. That's that boggles my mind. There's no way. So I am actually in that camp you just mentioned, where for me, McGuire couldn't stay healthy before PEDs would not have been a Hall of Famer. Sammy Suser was a frustrating player, as who, whose name Ted Kennedy could not know how to pronounce, and was never going to be a guy who averaged 60 plus home runs for four years, and then all of a sudden he became that player. So that is actually the camp that I'm in. 
I think Bonds and Clemens demonstrated Hall of Fame ability and had Hall of Fame resumes before I believe they began to use. And so maybe I can't prove it, but that's that is the camp that I'm in. That's well, where I've that's where I've wound up. To me, again, I if you take PDs away for a minute, or even if you don't, when we talk about the greatest players, when we talk about inner circle Hall of Famers, and we talk about the past 25, 30, 35 years, Bonds to me, Bonds is one of the players, and we're talking about the greatest players of all time. Right. Barry Bonds is one of those. Yeah. You can't, I don't think you can again, discuss properly the history of baseball in the 20th century without talking about Barry Bonds and, and Roger, Roger Clemens. Clemens. I agree. Roger Clemens. It's hard, it would can, be hard on Sosa and McGuire, but I don't think you can without the other right. two guys. You can make an argument that Roger Clemens, when you talk about, we talked about career value, peak value, you could very well make an argument. And again, was it PED enhanced? Absolutely. But you can make an argument that he is the greatest pitcher of the integration era. I think you can make a, 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 a case that he's the greatest pitcher of all time, right. period. Right. And I, to I, me, I, like it, when you talked about, like I like to break it up that way from the standpoint of yes. when you're comparing Cy Young to Roger Clemens, I agree. we're talking about such two vastly different eras. Baseball that, is really two different sports, pre-integration and post. There's no doubt about that. I think that's the best way to do it. But even if you're counting those guys, best, best pitcher of all time for me Roger Clemens. I mean, the, the uh, but it's you can't separate him from the PED stuff. But for again, me, now we're going to be doing this debate a few years down the road, maybe five, maybe six, maybe seven or eight. If Aaron <laughs> somehow you know finds <laughs> another stash of you know yeah. something, but uh, <laughs> but we we don't know that Aaron. We have no way of knowing at this point with Alex Rodriguez. There is no way to know whether he was using before he ever. You know, signed a first pro contract. We don't know. We don't know. That being said, again, this is where, to me, like my viewpoint on this, it's maybe too simplistic, but my viewpoint is, is that because we don't know, the easiest thing for me to do is judge by was this guy again to use the same standards that we've always used, and to just ask the question was this guy one of the greatest players? Well, again, like in Alex Rodriguez's case, Alex Rodriguez. I think he is the, I mean, again, he didn't play shortstop his entire career, but if you said the greatest shortstop of all time, yeah, and you said Alex Rodriguez, you have a defensible argument. Correct. And if you said best third baseman of all time, and you said Alex Rodriguez, you have a defensible argument. I wouldn't vote for him that way, but it's a defensible argument. There's no doubt. And so to say, well, we don't know when he started using PEDs, or he used PEDs, therefore, you know, uh, again... I think that's holding a standard for the Hall of Fame that just, it, it again, it gets it gets to be too difficult because and so and me even drawing the line on Sosa and saying like like for McGuire, my other argument against McGuire is that basically he's a glorified Dave Kingman. I mean he he's Dave Kingman who walked more and because he was in a much more offensive era, he hit a, 140 more home runs. I'm not saying he was. I don't think he's a very different player from Dave Kingman at all. Right down to. They were both pitchers and hitters. They both went to USC. They both started in the Alaska League, and they both were first base DHs. Kingman was probably a little bit better athlete. I follow you from your standpoint. If if your level is is without PEDs versus with, I follow. Mark McGuire with, and again, it was with PEDs, but Mark McGuire with PEDs, the reason I vote for him is, is that Mark McGuire, there was a stretch where he wasn't the best player in the game because we just talked about Barry Bonds. 
But if you said who are the five best players in the game, right. you weren't saying that without You're McGuire right. and Sosa. And, and so, so again, so, like if you do the I'm doing the I I don't I know which that. then I, that's where that's where they get in. I follow that. If if, the, if I had more room on the ballot, right. I probably would vote McGuire and Sosa in because of your argument, but if you gotta go to ten, that's the reason I, I leave those guys out. Yeah. And Sammy Suster, <laughs> five years. Let's just take his ninety eight to two thousand two years, JJ. His average was 157 games played, which that is a tool that we don't talk about enough in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Showing up, I'm sorry, that's a big, mm-hmm. that's a great tool. It's a long season. It is. He averaged 58 home runs a year that in that in that stretch. 306, 397, 649 <laughs> Again. for five years and 58 home runs per year. Again, so, we, we, we it, uh, yeah. the, the, the thing that is... So like, I see letting him in. He does at, not even at the very the end of, of his fame. career, like at the end of his career, kind of you know somewhat almost in disgrace and all, it's still like if you can get me on the field, I will hit you twenty home runs. Pretty much, that's it. So we vote, both vote Bonds, we both vote Clemens, Johnson, Martinez. Uh, I did my alphabetical order, so we both vote for Mike Piazza, JJ. And to me, I don't quite get how the PEDs have affected him and Bagwell so much. It surprises me, but especially Piazza. He's a slam dunk. I, he is I, he, again. When you watched Mike Piazza, you had a feeling you were watching the greatest hitting catcher of all time. At the ABCA, the college coaches convention this weekend, I just you know saw uh, Johnny Bench there. And uh, I've walked past Bench, and I've walked past Piazza. I've seen him. Piazza's a lot bigger guy than Johnny Bench. And it's not because of the juice. He's just a lot taller. He's just a bigger guy. And... So I understand why Johnny Bench was maybe the best two-way catcher of all time. If he's not the best, but he's behind Yogi Berra. When it Berra. comes to the best hitter, it's, it's not, it's not close. I don't think it's not just not the close with him. I don't know who else is in that conversation. Yvonne Rodriguez, I think, is a little underrated from the offensive side, standpoint. But, but I don't think. But again, I don't think Ernie Lombardi. Ernie Lombardi, who I mean, again, <laughs> I, I love Ernie Lombardi. Ernie Lombardi, who. To hit the averages that he hit, considering that it took him like four days to get to to get to first, like imagine a Molina brother, and then carrying a Molina brother on his back while carrying a Molina brother on his back with like one of those training things tied to him and an anchor, an anchor, an actual anchor into the ground that he had to drag to first base, and then you get Ernie Lombardi. So that's awesome. You know, so. Ernie Lombardi was an amazing hitter, you know, with an amazing arm. But the fact, again, you know, when we talk about, like, uh, to give a prospects sheet for a minute, when we talk about, will Kyle Schwarber catch? If the Cubs want Kyle Schwarber to catch, if, they're, if they are 100% committed to it, Kyle Schwarber will catch because there, he has nothing, I, I, I would put this to you, but he has nothing that absolutely positively disqualifies him. He probably correct. won't catch because teams want people to catch who are good catchers. That's correct. But Ernie Lombardi caught. And well, again, Ernie Lombardi was so slow, he couldn't play really anywhere else. Maybe they could play him at first base. I, it, it really pumps down to where do you want to limit him more. You got had a great arm, but if you put him at first and the ball gets by him, someone else is going to have to go get it. Right. Behind the plate, if a golf ball got by him, and back then, remember, the foul territory was bigger. If a golf ball got by him, it wasn't just a pass ball. It was usually two bases. Yeah. I mean, Schwarber, to me, uh, that's his biggest comps are recent guys like Jorge Posada and Mike Piazza. Guys who were Posada. I've ta- I talked to scouts about this when Piazza was, I mean, when uh, Piazza and Posada played. 
Piazza was like a 30 arm. Not like just turns of arm strength, but how it played. It played well below mm-hmm. average. And Posada was either a 30 or a 20 receiver, See, depending on who you talk to. The, the funny thing to me is, is I do think that Piazza's defense, while not great by any stretch, always got underrated from I the agree. standpoint of like Completely when it agree. comes to especially the era that Piazza was playing. This was not 1915. Or when, 1985. Right. In the era he was playing, Piazza as a receiver... I'm not, not going to say 60 or anything, but let's say 45 or 50 receiver who called a solid game. The scouts, I've t- I talked to scouts about this when he was active. It was toward the end of his career, but that's exactly what they said. He was a fringy receiver. He gave you a good target. He wasn't great at blocking in the dirt because, again, he was just so big. But the Dodger teams, when he was young especially, those Dodger pitchers trusted throwing to him. They didn't mind throwing to, to Mike Piazza. You can go back. Like, Javi Lopez was a contemporary who was an offense-first catcher. And the Braves had pitchers who just wouldn't throw to him, including... Because he called a poor game. Correct. And Greg Maddox just couldn't take it. The Dodgers had good pitchers, but Ramon Martinez wasn't going, hey, I'm not throwing to that guy. Right. Pedro Martinez, early in his career, who played in Albuquerque with him, wasn't going, hey, I'm not playing with that guy. You know, so Piazza, I, I completely agree with you. I think his defense... If Mike Piazza had, been, had tried to be a catcher in the 70s and 80s on the AstroTurf field... When guys like Omar Moreno and Willie McGee were running around and stealing 80 bases a year, it wouldn't have worked. You know, it wouldn't have worked. He would have been moved out from from right. catching. But, but he the, played an era where there wasn't a ton of speed. Or was an it was a power era. If, if Sammy Sosa is averaging 50 homers a year, you're not going to say, okay, the guy That's in front right. of him needs to try to steal second. He helped define the era. I think he's one of the best catchers of all time. I think he needs to be in the Hall of Fame. But again, and again. For if you are going, you have to, to me, go to the, I, if there's a whiff of suspicion. Right. To vote, not vote him. I agree. You, you are in the, there has never been anything actually tied to him. Right. Uh, Mike Piazza should have a big problem with Murray Chass if he doesn't already. Um, we both voted for John Smoltz. I remember uh, being in college and having uh, arguments with people about how you pronounced his name. Do you remember, did people ever pronounce his name as Schmoltz around you back in the day? We, I used to get a lot of that. I don't, I don't know what it, I don't know what it was. I got a lot I, of I, Probably it was because the fact that me being terrible <laughs> at pronouncing names was never going to call anyone out for pronouncing a name wrong because, uh, you, know, uh, you know, first remove the giant log in your own That's right. Do you think that Smoltz would have gotten in pre-Sabermetrics and do you think that he would have gotten in pre-Dennis Eckersley? Like if he was the first of his type? I, I feel like he, his candidacy benefits. Which we, by the way, we don't know yet if he's getting in. Yeah, I think, I think he's got a good chance, but I think, you know. It's not a certainty for sure. I'm, I'm just curious what you think. I mean, I think he would have gotten in as the, as the first of that type, but the fact that he doesn't have a gaudy win total or a huge save, I'm, I'm just curious. I think he would have gotten think, in, but it's not a slam dunk. I, I think, yes, if this was 19, you know, I, I know no way to say it, but, yeah, I, I agree with you because the best way I can put it is this. If all the voters were voters who covered baseball in 1960s and 1970s, I don't think you would get in nearly as easily. Right. But I think that nowadays you do have an electorate overall that looks at it and says, I- I'm not going to penalize a guy because he was one of the best pitchers, starting pitchers in the game, and then he moved to the bullpen, and he was arguably the best reliever in the game. Right. Why am I – or second. I, I, he was in the – he was with Mario Rivera's era. Right. But – well, there, he had years he was better than, than Mo. But, right, and know. then there's also Eric Gagne at that time, too, who was... 
in the same category value, as some of the guys we talked about. Yeah. I, I, Eric Gagne is one like one of these guys who's just forgotten now. But Eric Gagne, holy crap, well, that guy was good at his peak. But um, but no, I, I do think though that he probably yes, he is. He comes along at the right time for a guy with his kind of career path. And again, as you said, if you've got Eckersley coming, Eckersley kind of blazes the trail. And as great as Eckersley was at his best, I mean, John Smoltz was a significantly better and longer-lived, successful starting pitcher. John Smoltz never had a point in his career as a starter where he was a failed starter. Right. Dennis Eckersley, thanks to, thanks to uh, I believe he called it oil back then. Yeah. Thanks to the oil, I think Eck had periods right. where he failed. John, sure. John Smoltz was a great starting pitcher who then, because of health reasons, moved to the pen and was every bit as good. And I love the fact that when he moved to the pen for three or four years because of it was supposed to be better for his arm, he said, you know, this is not better for my arm. They moved it back to starting. He averaged 200 innings a year yeah. for his first three years again back yeah. as a starter. I mean, the, the whole uh, innings jump, John Smoltz, I think John Smoltz's uh, athleticism is undersold. So those are the seven guys. We actually so we agreed on seven guys on the ballot. JJ, you voted for Susser and McGuire, whom we've discussed, and Gary Sheffield. Uh, why don't you summarize Chef's uh, candidacy besides I, the fact that he has a cool nickname? I, I do think if you talk about the underrated guys, which is, sounds funny because it's it's hard to have underrated guys from an era where 50 home runs was kind of felt normal. Right. But if you talk about the underrated guys from that from that era, I, I do think that Sheffield is a guy who jumps out. At his best, again, he was... I was fortunate enough, 1992 is, 1992 is the first year that I got to cover baseball. I was actually, you know, covering the Braves some for the Atlanta Journal Constitution as an intern that year. So I got to do a story on Sheffield. So, I, you know, that year when he came through and remembering him at the time, I mean, he, he made a run at the Triple Crown that year. He did. His offensive war in 1996 was 7.7 by B-Ref, and in 92 it was 7. So, I mean, as an offensive player, if you use war, just, just get, right. you a, get, I don't buy it 100 percent we don't want to get into that but it gives you a little idea of just he was a significant offensive player again now he was not a great defender but he was you're talking about a guy who started at shortstop i mean he he played at significant defensive positions and he had a great arm again you know and was a you again i would say he's not getting in the hall of fame on his defense i'll put it that way but the other thing that i always thought that was notable about uh about Sheffield is is that in an era where strikeouts came with the home runs, Gary Sheffield's walk to strikeout numbers were simply insane. He never struck out 90 times in a season, not to mention 100. He never struck out 90 times in a season, J.J. I'll be honest, I probably underrate him a little bit because there are three outfielders who I feel are Hall of Fame caliber in this ballot who are not going to probably get in, Sheffield, Larry Walker, and Tim Raines. And I probably rank Sheffield third out of those, and I probably shouldn't. And you can to, make a you have him first. So to me, I have him first, and the reason I say this is like comparing to Larry Walker. The problem with Larry Walker that's always difficult is 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 trying to filter out the Coors Field, which is not easy because see, I don't think that's Larry, the problem. But no, but no, here, but here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying he's not a great player, but you look at Larry Walker's numbers. I can't help but remember that Don what Dante Bichette's numbers were there, and what you know, got, there were guys who were quite simply. Average guys who put up great numbers in course. Larry Walker didn't put up great. He put up sensational numbers. Right. Him and Todd Helton because they were great players. But if you said put him on a neutral field, Larry Walker's a better defender. Put him on a neutral field. 
I think Gary Sheffield was a better hitter than Larry Walker. I agree he was a better hitter, but you just said the other part of it. Right. Larry Walker. And here's the reason I actually think both those guys, all three of those guys, I think eventually should be all, Hall of Famers. All three of them are Hall of Fame caliber to me. But to me, Larry Walker's undersold because he is the prototype right fielder. If you say, if you ask a scout and they are the, the, the highest compliment they can give to a right fielder, it seems like almost always is. He's Larry, Larry Walker. Walker. That's exactly right. No That's one says. I'll say this. No one says Gary Sheffield. But one reason no one says Gary Sheffield is is that his bat speed right. was but, so unique. But his bat speed is what's always now. His bat speed is the gold standard mm-hmm. for scouts. That is a check in his resume for me. And just and, and the thing that puts Walker over the top is just from our perspective, doing this now for a long time. Hearing players again and again, when you say he's kind of a prototype right fielder, isn't he? He goes, well, he doesn't do this like Larry Walker did. That is what, that, that just right. the, in I, the I don't scouting even think of community. Who the other right fielder, I mean. You know, the other one was Jermaine Dye. I get a lot of comments for the tall right, right fielder. But that was never that it was the ideal. Correct. It was something that you got a lot of, but it was never because he was, was the good. ideal. It was that he was a good player, he was athletic, he was big. Him and, and generally also, and he, and he swung and missed and swung right. a little bit of stuff that he needed that's, to let that's go. That's the one, there, you get a lot of Jermaine Dye comps. Same you, don't way get, that, you don't get many Walker comps because Walker's the ideal. Same thing, it's a funny thing we say this, like when you go to center field like Jermaine Dye, there, you, know, you, uh, you know, you go to center field and there were the, the there was the, it wasn't that it was the archetype, but, um, and I was like Connor's favorite player. Oh, Mike Cameron. Mike Cameron. Tons Mike Cameron. Mike Cameron, Mike Cameron, you know, you get a ton, because it's an, it's a, a field of players. Right. It's different. Larry Walker, it was not that there was a field of players like Larry Walker. It was that, well, he doesn't do this as well. I'll say another player who's not even on the ballot anymore, who's in the same conversation for me, is Kenny Lofton. I feel like I haven't studied it. I feel like Kenny Lofton, and this is why Tim Raines isn't on my ballot. I really want to know the differences between Tim Raines and Kenny Lofton's careers and why Tim Raines is seen as a cinch Hall of Famer for a lot of people. And why Kenny Lofton is not. Personally, I think Reigns had a better peak. I think Lofton's career, he was better longer. He was a leadoff man on good teams longer than Tim Reigns was. Tim Reigns, after Montreal, was merely a good player. Kenny Lofton was a great player. For, was a very good player, I think, longer than Tim Reigns was. Uh, yeah, I think Kenny Lofton's criminally underrated. I don't know why. I don't understand it. I saw, I think it was Dave Schoenfeld, uh, Dave Schoenfeld at ESPN. Someone did a story the other day on the best players who fell off the ballot uh, under 5%, and Kenny Lofton's on that team, and Lou Whitaker gets a lot of publicity for being on that team too. I think Kenny Lofton's the best player on that team by a lot. I just don't get how he fell off the ballot. I really just don't see his career as that different from Reigns's. But but, but I I get why he fell off the ballot, though, which is is that, again... This ballot got too crowded? When... If you're voting for ten, yeah, you're I mean, right. Again, the, the voting it's frustrating. The voting for ten. I, I'm I'm going to do a little aside here. You know, sorry, I, I'm giving okay. you, I'm hitting you blind with this, but we have the same kind of construct problem. The golden era, you know, committee met in December and didn't vote anyone in. Yeah, and there does seem like that there's some ballot construction issues there, and that from what I understand, everyone voted for the maximum number of players, and they still didn't. But because there's enough good candidates, or that people consider good candidates, no one reached the threshold they needed. Because, and this is an interesting, like, 
the, the Hall of Fame has done it the way that it's done it for a long time, and I, and I don't think it's probably going to change. When the baseball writers have even kind of brought up the idea of why don't, you know, what about the idea of us voting for whoever we feel is qualified? And if that means I vote for 20 guys and for 20. And they're, you know, that's not the way the Hall of Fame wants to do it. It's their Hall of Fame. Right. It's their right to do that. But I do think, though, that one of the difficulties with a ballot-based system where you have a threshold and it's, you know, you vote for, when you have a, a number of candidates, it does become a problem. Like, I, again, I think it's a better system than, like, you look at, like, uh, to me, in the, in, the U, in the U.S., the NBA Hall of Fame, you know, the Basketball Hall of Fame, I, I, I can't even tell you what their system is because it seems like it. Yeah, I can't either. NFL, I know what it is. And I think the, the baseball version is much better in that the NFL one is a group of experts, but they get together in a room, they hash it out, and then, okay, you, we can only vote this many. We're going to settle on these together. I think that becomes, you know, that's a little bit more like the Veterans Committee used to be. Right. Where things could get swayed because if you have a good person making the case, you know, a, a persuasive person making the case, or you have a persuasive person making the case against a player, right. it can kind of sway things too much. Like the guy who stands up and kills Art Modell every year. <laughs> Keep it up. I, I, I'm, per, I'm happy to hear that. I hope that happens in perpetuity. That was an easy one. But, uh, yes, it was. But um, if, you, if you take a team from Cleveland, yeah, I don't want to start. <laughs> okay. but, but, um, but I do think the, the, the problem we have in baseball is, is that the way it's constructed now works fine when you don't have the PED era problems. Right. But when you throw that in, it's almost like, again, it creates a a problem that becomes difficult to to really kind of work through because you just don't know. Again, if if everyone thinks that there's all these qualified players and players are not getting it, not because people don't think they're qualified, everyone, again, if if it's something where 75% of the balloters think the player's qualified, but he can't get in because... Everyone thinks that there's 15 qualified players. Yeah, that's, well, that's an issue. It's an issue, and you know, the Hall of Fame keeps losing money every year, basically every year. I mean, I've lost more than a million dollars last year. They don't want that to keep happening. The way they make money, I would think, is they have people come to see the Hall of Fame, <laughs> and they come to see people in the Hall of Fame. And, but I know, but you know, I mean, again, they're in a difficult situation also, though, because they're there in is Town, New York. But there's also there is a core of baseball fans. There's a core. There's a group for whom the people who want the Barry Bonds of the world in want them in. The people who don't want Barry Bonds in, Barry Bonds being a Hall of Famer is a stain against the entire institution. And they're not the, coming if he's in. The vehemence of the anti PED player is I would say that's actually a very compelling argument JJ because that is basically where the country is politically right now you have movements in one end of the spectrum when you see 30 plus states just for example have approved gay marriage Mm -hmm. but you also see 30 plus states now are Republican controlled in their state legislatures and governors those two things are at odds and yet they've both happened because the vehemence of people brings them to the polls I, so so I like, what I'm saying it, it's, is, it's the, a very the, similar situation. The vehemence is that I think there's a lot of that's a compelling argument. It, I'll put it this way: if you, if when if you're one of these writers who announces your ballot 
and you announce I didn't vote for any PED users, you will get, I'm sure there's going to be some bloggers and all who may point out like, you know, okay, it's an inconsistent or whatever. But you're going to get a lot of emails from people or letters, handwritten letters saying, thank God someone's standing right. at the door. Whereas if you write a, if you put it, submit a ballot, you know, and publicize a ballot that you voted for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and all that, the anger of the people who disagree is going to be stronger because, yep. again, we always, I mean, again, baseball is a, a unique sport in many ways. I, I love, I've gotten in one of my, you know, time to time rabbit holes where I, I've been going through the really old baseball guys from the 1890s, the 1900s, the 1910s. And what's great about baseball in many ways is that it is the only American sport, the only significant American sport that has had this track, this history. Like right. none of the others do. When we talk about football, really, to be honest, football history starts post-World War II. I mean, it just does. Right. Like, you can talk about college football in the 20s. And, and, a, lot of, and NFL, for a lot of fans, it starts with the Super Bowl, which is 50 years old, right. basically. Okay. Basketball, again, there was college, but basketball, you might have to go to the 70s to 60s. Let's go to the Celtics in the 60s and UCLA and all. That's when, you know, now, maybe you can for, go to the late 50s. I would, no, I would say for a lot of your modern uh, aficionados of basketball it pretty much in college basketball it almost starts after the UCLA dynasty ends which is 75 was Wooden's last championship and then it starts with the NBA for a lot of people Magic and Bird what happened before the, at least the merger which was, was, was 77 70, maybe Dr. J you know yeah like that the merger right but I mean like before that I mean like how many how many NBA fans know that the Milwaukee Bucks had Lou Alcindor and Oscar Robertson and won a world championship and I believe that was in 1971. How many of them even know the Knicks won two championships in 1973? I mean, if you're an NBA fan, that's how. I mean, really, I, th- I think I mean, modern again, NBA is... really is post-merger NBA, which was, and then Magic and Bird started in '80. Whereas... So I mean, like that, that, that's really the modern NBA. So yeah, by that time, baseball was already more than 100 years old. And baseball not only was it more than 100 years old, but baseball has revered these players who. Whose careers really? I mean, with baseball, when you're doing the, if you're doing the same thing, you can say 1901. Think about it. This or you way. really can say, again, if you're doing the strictest definition, the Keith Olbermann way to go. But the strict, but I'm saying by the strictest fan definition, Babe Ruth playing, it fits into the era that everyone follows. Ty, maybe you say the tail end of Ty Cobb. But really, in baseball, we do have people who believe strongly. That Babe Ruth was the greatest player of all time, and that he'll never be exceeded. No one's making that argument in the NBA with George Mikan, <laughs> really. Nobody's making that argument in the NFL Russell, for Red Grange. They do with Chamberlain, but I mean, but I, I, think, I think that stopped happening. I, I think it happens yeah. less. But they do, no one's making that in the NFL with, with, with Red Grange. No. With what, 1920s Red yeah. Grange? Is anybody making it for Bronco Nagurski? No. I mean, I love Bronco Nagurski, but, but I mean, come on. But no. So that, then, that's what I'm saying. So people make that argument with a straight face. Or Cy Young's the best pitcher. Right. Or, or Walter know. Johnson right. or Lefty Grove. Right. I mean, come on. Come on. And again, if you want to say that they're the best because where they stood compared, if you want to say Honus Wagner, who I think right. you could, you know, compared to where he was in his era. I forget, I forget who wrote the article about Honus Wagner, but he talked about how the players that Honus Wagner played against, like the average size was like 5'7", 150 or right. whatever. Go, the average go other sit in stops. a seat in Fenway. Exactly. And go, okay, wait a second. This is what the average, you know, 
And that was an important piece for me to read. It was just over like Christmas break last year, maybe like a couple months. It was during Jeter's retirement. And the guy was saying that he, he was making the argument that Jeter was the greatest shortstop of all time. I don't agree with that. But if you want to say Jeter was better than... I think I can see where he'd say Jeter did it was better than Honus Wagner because the competition level right. was so Again, much more it, difficult it and on... the degree of difficulty just in terms of jet travel, all these kind of things. Again, if you talk about it from the standpoint of if you say, I'm only going to look at a player in his own era, I follow it. Correct. But if you say that we got a time machine and we picked Honus Wagner up and we put him... We don't need a we hot put tub him, for that. But if we put him into 2015, I don't know if he's a big leaguer. I haven't even seen the movie Hot Tub Time Machine, but every time I hear the word time machine, I either think of Doc Brown or that stupid movie Hot Tub Time Machine. But, but, but you're right. Sorry, if, you put, Wagner, if you put Honus Wagner in the Hot Tub Time Machine and brought him to today... I think he'd be a big leaguer, but I don't think he'd be the greatest player of his era or second I, I, well, I'm not saying he wouldn't eventually get there, but I'm saying like the day he arrived, again, we're talking about some weird hypothetical, but yes. the day he arrived, and it's like, wait, this guy throws really hard. Exactly. Wait, and they're, they're, they're replacing him. They're but, bringing someone else into the, the game By the my pitch? fourth at bat, I'll get him. Wait, what? <laughs> Who's this guy? What is this cut fastball? Wait a minute, that's a slider. I don't even know what a slider is. Yeah. No, is that right. a nickel curve? Exactly. No. You know, but I'm saying, like, I mean, it's funny, like, also one of those old baseball guys from, like, 1905 who threw out the idea of that every, every pitcher, there's going to be a time where you have a rough stretch. And the proposal was, is I think you should be allowed to leave the game Take a little breather and come back in. Because, again, there, there was the idea that maybe you might have to relieve a guy every now and then. But the idea was, but you only have your pitcher. So That's right. why would you, you know, but so as soon as he's well, ready to go two. again, yeah. he needs to go back out there. They're not going to prove. It's a different game. All right, got to wrap this up. Yeah. Um, so there's three guys I voted for that you didn't vote for. Um, I voted for Jeff Bagwell. I just think Jeff Bag was on the short list. When you really look at it, of greatest first baseman of all time, he was a two-way player. He was a defender and an offensive player. He ran the bases. He was, I think, he's in the very, very short list of the greatest players in Astros history. If he's not the greatest player in Astros history, he's right. Greatest on the trade short list. in Astros history, also. I think no doubt, no doubt about that. And Joe um, Morgan will be the worst trade. <laughs> correct. Um, yeah. To, so for me, um, Jeff Bagwell was any at his peak in 1994. You're arguing he might have been the best player in baseball, right? Period. Oh, again, in that one year, I don't disagree with you. He just you, ran out of room. Ran out of room. Okay, I, I, I'll put it this way. And again, I don't. I'm not asking for exact number because I didn't like we. we again, we're we're doing this hypothetical exercise. We're yes. not voters again. Let's make this clear. Yes. But uh, you got to ten. I didn't sit down there and go, okay. So really, if it came, how many would I vote? I know it at least be fourteen. It might have been like seventeen or eighteen. They go to been seventeen or eighteen for me. Kurt Schilling, I put him in. I think if you put, to me, you put Smoltz in, you put Schilling in, they're a matched pair to me. And I believe that those guys, the difference between those guys and Mike Mussina is that Mike Mussina was a number one starter for a while, couldn't get over a hump, didn't win a World Series in Baltimore with some really loaded teams, and then went to New York and was very comfortable being a three or four. And to me, that, that was not Kurt Schilling and that was not John Smoltz. When they were in the staff... They were the ace. Give me the GD ball, and I'm going to win you a World Series. And Schilling did it twice. Smoltz did it once. And I almost did it twice with the 91 Braves. It to me, fault. it wasn't his fault. Lonnie Smith says, yes, exactly. So to me, that's a separator. It's a small separator. I still think Mucina is a Hall of Fame caliber pitcher, but that's why Smoltz and Schilling are greater than Mucina for they're, me. 
again, and I you think said you have to split hairs. This you have to split point. hairs at this point because the reality of it is, is that I, I do think you know. Again, with Schilling, I I didn't. Eat, the funny thing is, is I didn't even get to the point of really like bearing down on Schilling just because I was like, I, I whether he is or not for me, I know I like these guys better. Interesting. And right. that was you know, and that was. I think Schilling is the greatest combination of power and command in modern baseball history. That's another factor that sets him apart. There's no power pitcher who threw as many quality strikes as Kurt Schilling. And that, again, he is a prototype from a scouting grade. He pitched basically like a six or seven fastball with eight command, J.J. I mean, he was really a, he was he was a an one and a half to two pitch pitcher. Yeah, basically. And, and with, with amazing success. Level. So to, for me, he's just very similar to Smoltz, and I put him in. And then I put in Alan Trammell basically at the last minute, A, because I think he does need the support, and B, from that shortstop thing we talked about, I think it's really hard to find great shortstops, and I think he was a great shortstop for a very long time. In, he, he was a very good player for a very long time at an extremely demanding position. When you really measure his career, it's very, very similar to that of Derek Jeter. He didn't win four or five World Series like Jeter did. He didn't play on as good of teams. And he was, I think you can make the argument, the best player on the best team of the 1980s, the Detroit Tigers. I put him in. How much does he get hurt? Because I think this, like, for me, he wasn't going to be one of my ten. How much does he get hurt because of the difference between the other shortstops in the game when he played and the shortstops in the game now? Like, in the last... Uh, in the uh, two dec- a decade later, because I think he was when, a bridge. He did have the one. I mean, he had two years where he hit twenty plus home runs. Right. He wasn't a power. But, first but what guy. I'm saying is, is that when Alan Trammell was a shortstop, again I, I go back and forth because when Alan Trammell was shortstop, you had him and Ripken, who were these and Robin Robin Yount when he played shortstop, right? And Robin Yount when he played shortstop, who were these offensive middle of the line, you know, could be a middle of the lineup type guy or a top of the lineup type guy in an era when a whole lot of teams. Had 190 or 210 hitting nothings right. batting at the bottom of the order, and at that time, like, so they really stand out, and rightfully so because again, like, if you said the difference between Alan Trammell and what the average production of a shortstop for most of his career, it was much more immense than when you talk about. I would say probably even like a difference between Jeter and the average shortstop of the late 90s because at that point, again, Jeter was up above it. Yeah. But in the late 90s, you had a whole, one of many. You was one of many because at that point, there was no one who was playing shortstop who was hitting 220 of no power. At that time, like every once in a while, every it seemed like a lot of other, like every once in a while, oh, Jay Bell's going to hit 30 home runs this year. Oh, wait, Jose Hernandez. Is going to play shortstop this year and hit 18, 19. That's right, the 100. Right, 180, yeah, exactly. But there were guys who just did that as a matter of course. Jeter did it every year, which is what was Jeter's greatness. That's the other part but to right, me. Jeter, for, but like for, when you know, because you had at the time it was the Trinity, and it was like, you were getting that from Jeter, you were getting more from that from A Rod, you were getting something Garcia like Parra. that from Garcia Parra. And then Tejada. Tejada. Yeah. Barry Larkin was still, you know, in, in within his career where he was, you know, I mean, putting yeah. up. You had like six, seven, eight guys in an average year who were extremely productive shortstops. When Alan Trammell was doing it, it was one, two, or three. Because Cal, I mean, right. Cal would have a great year, and then Cal would have a year where he was still way above the average. But, oh, he messed with his stance this year, and he hit in 240. And I think, so. to me, Trammell had a, a very high peak, and he had a long career of being very good. Uh, 
he's a borderline case for me. I really would. It's the it's the shortstop part that pushed him over the top. It to me it's uh, it, it's in the short list of the most important positions on the on the on the field. Whether you want to put pitcher, catcher, shortstop, he's on the short list of that, and he's one of the better players ever to do it. I also think the '80s are a little underrepresented right now in the Hall of Fame. I I, I agree, and, and I want to go I, back though. I, I wonder what that how much of that is is that they're underrepresented, and how much was it that we really had a. Our formative years were really a pretty poor era for greats. I, 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 it's hard for me to decide. Like, was that 84 Tigers team just so good because it was just – were they like the Spurs? Like, where, yeah, you have Tim Duncan, but otherwise, like, just a lot of good players. But Lance Parrish, not a Hall of Famer, but he was really good. The guy had 33 home runs that year as a catcher. Whitaker, Trammell, Kirk Gibson, Darrell Evans, these are all, like, borderline Hall of Fame candidates – you know, I think Bill James would argue Daryl Daryl Evans should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, he was a 37-year DH that year, and then of course Jack Morris, borderline Hall of Famer. I think we both agree that he should not have gotten in. But for me, the best career out of all those guys is Trammell. I, I do think it's amazing that this team does not have anybody in the Hall of Fame. I can't believe that Juan Berenguer fell off the ballot so quickly, JJ. So. Hey, 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 he was he was blazing the trail for John Smoltz in some ways. smoke. He was starting then, and then he's like, and then he was like, and then I will close for John Smoltz down the road. One of my all-time favorite nicknames, Senior Smoke, Wambier and Gare. Real quick, JJ, other guys that neither of us voted for, Tim Raines eventually in or not? I think eventually he does get in. I, I think what we've seen with this is that orchestrated campaigns by people who have large, you know, I mean, Jonah Carey is, you yeah. know, has done a very good job, like of. Hey, Rich uh, Letterer did it for Burt Blylevin. Right. I, again, I think that eventually that all adds up. Um, the the problem Reigns' biggest problem is going to have is is that, as you see with our ballots, again, do I think Tim Reigns is a Hall of Famer? Sure. Do yeah. I? Is he one of the top ten guys I'd vote for? No. And that's the problem. Larry Walker, would you put him in? Yes or no? Yes. Eventually, yes. Okay. I'm 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 a I'm a yes on Corporal Captain. Edgar Martinez. Who? We even talk about Edgar. For me, if Edgar Martinez gets in, then David Ortiz is. I think David Ortiz is going to be. I, I think David. That's the thing. See, I think David Ortiz is a better Hall of Fame candidate. But I, I just think, do. See, but I'm saying, like, if David Ortiz gets in, then to me, there's a very strong candidate for Edgar Martinez. If you think David Ortiz is a Hall of Famer, I follow that you could say if you put weight to what happens in the postseason, clearly he has much more. You play to win the game, so right. yes. But that 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 helps him a lot. But Edgar Martinez... I would say, was Edgar Martinez ever the Mariners' best player? No, but you, he was with. But he was playing... Do you get penalized? How much do you get penalized, though, that he was playing? Like, Yogi Berra was never... Was probably... You could argue was never the best player in the Yankees. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Probably I mean, right about that. DiMaggio career, Mantle. But, I would say, but, yeah. Yeah, but DiMaggio, post-war DiMaggio, wasn't the same. Right, but if you ask anyone at the time, though, who's the best I, player... Well, I think Berra was the one winning the MVPs. Right, but... But what I'm saying though is that I follow you. If, if you're playing career. with Griffey, Pete Griffey, because he only he only played with Pete Griffey. He didn't right, play no, with right. broken down he Griffey. With, but he played with Pete Griffey, pretty close to Pete Brandy Johnson and, and early A Rod. I mean, those are three inner circle, inner circle best Hall careers of, of all time. Yeah. So again, I don't know how much I penalize him. It was great for him because that's why they won 110. I'll, I'll just say plus. that he, he was a he was the best DH of his time at that time. Or second best, because Frank Thomas was better. Mm-hmm. I was just saying he was second best. Because Frank Thomas was better. 
Oh, Frank his Thomas career, is in a different group. His career is very similar. His very his career is very similar to Frank Thomas's and David Ortiz's. I would say that it's not as good as Frank Thomas's, and it's very close between him and Ortiz because Ortiz played at some of the same time, but now he's in a less offensive era and he keeps doing it. They both played in offensive ballparks. I the, think Ortiz's postseason puts him Martinez, over the top. The, the thing that hurt Martinez the most. Which is somewhat out of his control, but at the same time, it's just the reality of it is is that is he got a late start partly because right. they couldn't figure out you know what to do with him. It's part it's partly not his fault because they didn't recognize his hitting ability, but it is partly his fault because he was a bad defensive player. Right, and that is part of the game. And Ortiz's story is very similar because the Twins didn't realize what they had because he couldn't defend. Mm-hmm. So they're very similar players in a no, lot I get, of ways. I, I get to me like and offensively. Over the course of their careers, Martinez is a little bit better. So for purely offensive players, I follow it. That you, If you would say Edgar's better, I just think that three World Series championships and as the key guy in all three, that's a big, big separator. Now again, again the, argu- the argument you can make with Ortiz is, is that as good as he was, how many years was he the best player on those teams? I think he was the best player in the postseason for all three of those no, not teams. Postseason, but those teams. But that's what yeah. that's that's the whole his whole case but, is but, really that. That's right. the, that is the separating factor, and it's not just a separator. It's a separator over ten years. Oh four, oh seven, thirteen. That is that's to me the what makes it such a special case. It wasn't just that he was the best player in the postseason over like three times in five years. It was three times over a decade. That's some real longevity. That's then, then pretty are, spectacular. But let me argue that yeah. if you're talking about the postseason, then then is Jack Morris deserving candidate then? Because when you talk about postseason, Jack Morris... That's all he has. Though. Right. It's a 390 ERA. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> I, again, I don't think... So, know, no. That's yeah. that's what separates him maybe from, say, Jim Cott or Tommy John, but does not separate him from guys who are a lot better than him. Right. I mean, that, that to me is the bottom line for, for Jack Morris. He just wasn't flat out good enough, but... I mean, Edgar is, to me, Edgar is a borderline guy. Right. I think eventually I would vote for him to be in. But again, it's, it's, but it it's depends borderline. on that they get through all the guys ahead of him. Yes. Um, but, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm arguing him versus... <laughs> and so yeah. Sosa, I would eventually put Sosa and Maguire in if I were allowed to vote for more guys. I think your argument is really a better argument, a more logical argument than mine. Um, Jeff Kent, J.J., <laughs> See, I don't think of him as a Hall of Famer, but I have never really bared down on his. If you bear down on him, it's a very compelling case. Now, he's again, basically he's basically a lower batting average Rogers Hornsby, and I make that comparison in that extremely offensive second baseman, irascible, not likable human being, and but that really to doesn't me, matter. Again, to he, me, like it, it doesn't matter. He, he did, did it keep them from winning? No. How about Brian Giles? And I like Brian Giles. But I love Brian Giles, but no. no. Freddie McGriff. No. Carlos Delgado. Closer, but no. I mean, See, again, I think actually McGriff is closer because McGriff, if he'd come along five years later, he would have hit 500 home runs. He'd have gotten in. And I don't think of Freddie McGriff as a user. Freddie no, McGriff. He was, he, Fred, he, was a, he was a slant. I mean, again, you know, I'm not going to even get into the suspicions on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you, you're got, but I think the Tom Amansky commercials might put him over the top. I thought that Fred McGriff led the league in homers more than twice. That was my impression. He only led the league in homers twice. I mean, I again, like, if you, like if you say Fred McGriff, yes, I'm not going to like, I am not going to rail against that because we are right now, it, there are so many people who are good candidates who aren't even getting close. 
11, and 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. We've put in 18 guys through Kent. I think you and I are agreeing on 18 guys. And then McGriff and Delgado are pretty borderline for me. I would probably say yes to McGriff. And I haven't bared down on Carlos Delgado. But I think if you put McGriff in, Delgado is extremely similar. He hit 20 fewer home runs in his career. Um, it, again, I love Carlos there, Delgado. There, there's, there's a part of me that really my brain short circuits in all this because we're both kids, you know, who basically we were believe... kids of late 70s baseball. Yeah. 80s baseball was our formative years. Yeah. So you put all that together. And if you told, if again, if you got the time machine, and now we have you know more advanced statistics and all that, but if you got in the we time machine, we are in twenty fifteen. But if you told nineteen eighty five me, who was really into this kind of stuff already, yes, and you said I was thirteen at the time, if you told me, you know, there are guys who are going to hit four hundred and sixty, four hundred seventy, four hundred eighty, seven hundred. There's a guy's going to hit seven hundred sixty two home runs and not be in the Hall of Fame. My head would have exploded. But like at least the seven hundred, like okay, did he kill a man like <laughs> on the field, you know, or something like I would have. Was he a communist? I, I would have said. I would have tried to wrap my brain around that part. But if you'd have told me, no, there are gonna be guys who hit three hundred with right five hundred home runs for their career, or right around that, and they're just gonna not be voted in because it's like eh, I don't know if that's a Hall of Famer. My head would have like. I, I would not have been able to comprehend it. And I follow it in some ways in that, like, okay, let's go down the road. Jim Tomei. In. Easy. I agree. I, easy. I, I agree. To me, he's easy. I don't I don't think it's going to be easy for him. Really? I don't think so. I think Big Jim's going to get in pretty easily. I really do. I think he's going to get on the first ballot because I don't think he's thought of the same way McGuire and these guys are. I don't. Or even Bagwell. I think, but again, I, like I, Jeff I Bagwell, I, I, I can't. I didn't even, again, I didn't even put him in my 10 because there's so many candidates. But Jeff Bagwell, there is nothing statistically where I can say, you know, where anyone can say, oh, no, it's not. I, I don't sense that the same suspicion with Tommy that there is with Bagwell because Tommy hit for power early in his career and Bagwell didn't. And that's, that seems to be what people base see, it on for again, Bagwell. And this I'm, is, I'm, I'm, and I think it's stupid. I know, and, and this is where, to me, this is the point where I lose the understanding with the absolutionist viewpoint. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. Again, I follow it more if you say, I'm just literally not voting anyone from that era, which to me, again, I can't understand that viewpoint. But when you say, that's well... A, that's a give-up viewpoint. Right, but if you say, that's well, I think that there's at least a chance that he did, even though there's no proof of any sort, I... I I can't see that as a reason to say, no, I'm not voting for a guy. Me neither. You know, Chuck Skinny, Carlos Delgado, only made two All-Star teams. So he hit 473 home runs, J.J. What do you think that ranks in career, according to BaseballReference.com? Now it's 16th. 31st. <laughs> I mean, seriously. And, and that again, is the problem. If, you, if you said 1985, if you were talking about this in 1985, it would have been like, I mean... You know, I, I at that point I'll put it this way. I mean, at that point it, I could have run through every player over five hundred. I mean, I, I think I'm gonna try to do that. I mean, like you started off with Aaron, you went to Ruth, you went to Mays, mm-hmm. you went to Frank Robinson, mm-hmm. Killebrew, 
Now, it depends on how far back you go. After Killebrew, wasn't it Reggie Jackson for a while at 563? Something like that. I mean, that, yeah. I mean, then you had, I, I don't remember who's in between, if there's a 540 in there, but I know Williams and uh, was 521. I mean, was it Mickey Mantle 521 as these well? were the greats. I mean, these were, you know. And Frank McCovey. I mean, Frank McCovey. Willie McCovey. Oh, Jimmy Double X Fox is 534. Mantle's 536. I forgot about Jimmy Double X Fox. I mean, Michael Jack Schmidt, 548. But right now, Michael Jack Schmidt is 15th all time. I mean, Jimmy Fox is 17th. Willie McCovey, Frank Thomas, Ted Williams, but 521. Again, I mean, Albert Pujols about to pass all those guys. The funny thing about that also is, is that we're going to see is the same bad? thing, but we're going to see the same thing happen. Like, logically, no one has ever actually proven anything with Albert Pujols. But yeah, you're right. we're going to see the same, I would call it a rumor campaign. How about Manny Ramirez? Is Manny Ramirez going to get into the Hall of Fame? I don't think Manny will. I don't think he will either. And, but I'll say this at least. With Manny, you can make what I best would call the Dick Allen argument in that... Manny had times where his makeup actually actively hurt teams winning and losing. It wasn't a good team, but he did, he would... That's hard to say because he was on great teams. He was on great teams too, but... Always. When, no, the but, Indians were an all-time offense. But The Red Sox won two World Series with him, and the Dodgers won playoff series with him as their best player. I, I don't disagree. What I'm saying is, is what I'm saying as far as people voting though, there's going to be memories of that. There were years where he pretty much forced, you know, he, he really did force it, almost force a trade. He pushed he, down this the traveling secretary with the right. Red Sox. He, it sounds like there were some times where he. Was but there a was also like, but was, and one, if I remember right though, he was also like with the injuries and all, he was kind of pulling, you know. There was, right, but also, but but he didn't like compare him to Nomar. The Red Sox got better. It was like a Ewing theory was no, with Nomar. That didn't happen necessarily with, no. Man, with, with again, Manny Ramirez. Manny Ramirez is, to me, like, again, if you ask me... I don't think me, he's getting in. If you ask me, I'm voting for him because he's one of the greatest hitters... Of all time. Of all time. Pure. He was pure. There's no doubt about that. For me, I think it'd be hard to put him in, but he's very comparable to Reggie Jackson as a career. And a better and hitter. And a better hitter. Better, better hitter. hitter. And if you're talking about makeup... And, and he was actually... and he, Teammates yeah. didn't like him, all that kind of stuff... I mean, Reggie Jackson was the straw and all that stuff. But, I mean, like, he called much more attention to himself. I think Manny Ramirez, I think they're very comparable. Yeah. So, Albert Pujols, I mean, I don't think he's going to have any trouble getting in. But maybe he will. <laughs> I don't know. Before we talk about Gary, Gary Sheffield, I mean, you have to get on to Eddie Murray at 504 home runs. He's number 26, JJ. That's 26 guys. Is that bad? You think Big Poppy gets to 500 home runs? He's at uh, 466. Yeah. Because he had a good enough year last year. It would really. I mean, I, I know the ink can come. I know the ink can come quick. Yeah. But the thing he's got is is that he had a good enough year last year. It really come down to if he wants to get. I'll put it this way: if he wants to get to five hundred, he will because. Will that get him in? I don't know if it will or not. It's you know. Gary Sheffield five oh nine number twenty five. <clears throat> I'm just looking at recent retirees. Chipper Jones are going to get in, don't you think? Oh yeah, I, I think Chipper will be a first ballot. Chipper Jones. Chipper. Chipper will be a first ballot because. Again, in an unfair, in some ways, world, he is not tarred with that brush. Same way Griffey's not. He's tarred with the redneck brush, and I think he's the one who's holding the brush. <laughs> so, uh, how about, we'll end with this, how about Vladimir Guerrero? Do you think Vladimir Guerrero is going to be a Hall of Famer? 
I think so. But again, maybe I'm maybe I am a big haul guy. Vladimir Guerrero, three eighteen, three seventy nine, five fifty three, one forty ops plus for his career, twenty five hundred and ninety hits. He did not even strike out a thousand times in his career. For as much as people think of him as a free swinger, he almost walked as much as he struck out. Seven hundred and thirty seven walks, nine hundred and eighty five strikeouts, four hundred and forty nine home runs. He's an eighty hitter. I mean that's an eighty hitter. That's an eighty hitter, JJ. He's an eighty hitter. With like with, seven power. With seven power. And like a seven arm with like four defense. <laughs> right. That's all, I mean, who did it? Right. That's a Hall of Famer to me. I think he's a Hall of Famer. Again, I, I hey, I'll, I'll carry a bias. I, you know. I love Vladimir Guerrero. We, we both got to see Vladimir Guerrero play in, in low, the in low, in Stally League and loved him ever since. That's correct. This you know, I mean, like, I, I, the sad thing is, is that we're not even going to have a discussion about whether Andrew Jones is uh, a Hall of Famer because he's not. That's an outrage. And that, that hurts. It is an outrage that he had a lesser career than Vladimir Guerrero. It really, it, it kind of is an outrage to me, JJ. We have to have a pitcher discussion some other time. We went a lot longer than we thought we were going to be. I thought we were going to have some prospect handbook talk. We'll do that another um, time. We'll do that another time. You might just do that with the with the Josh Norris. Mm-hmm. I need to, I need to sleep. Uh, we have a college preview issue coming up. We just finished the prospect handbook. If you the haven't already read the handbook, handbook oh, having that done feels. Please, good. please do so. Um, we like the handbook. We like our jobs. <laughs> we like working at Baseball America. If you go to baseballamerica.com and click on the the store, uh, you can order your prospect handbook. Order from us. We're editing the numbers uh, thirty one prospects today. Uh, very pleased with the uh, front of the book. We revamped the front of the book to better explain both the scouting 20 to 80 scouting scale, which we use throughout the book, and our own BA grades. There's also was on a 2080 scale. Um, Japers asked on Twitter, JJ, if we had any safe players in the book. How many safe players? One. And what was the highest top numerical grade? We discussed getting rid of the safe. We basically did this. We had one safe player. One safe. Um, I'll, I'll give, we'll, give, we'll give it away. Give it away. Tucker Barnhart. Who was a safe, I believe, or low last year, moved up to safe. His safe, he's safe to be a big league backup catcher, a role that he served part of last year. And that's the thing, there really weren't as many players who, like, like Brandon Workman in 2013, especially in the playoffs, showed you he could be a big league setup man at a championship team, an eighth inning guy on a championship team, and then he was still prospect eligible. So that was an easy safe. Or Lance Lynn, three years ago, had already been a championship caliber setup man for a World Series team in 2011. That was an easy save. Right. Although with really Lynn, like, you could guys. go with, like, again, we, we sometimes have these debates. Like, you yeah. can go, because really, well, a lot of times what it is, is it's it's a battle, it's a balance of, okay, well, how much ceiling do you want to put on this right. guy? Like, Correct. A, a, an interesting discussion. Brandon Compton was a safe last year, and I feel pretty validated about that. He was actually the guy that triggered our debate last year if we should get rid of this. But I thought that he'd already demonstrated he could be a fifth starter swing man, and that's basically what he did this year for the Pirates. Well, but like to give an example, like when we were talking about Trey Turner at the very last late yes. stages of the, the the book, we're talking about you can set, you can either set him as a low, you know, like a, a lower grade as far as like what is he going to be, like a fifty medium. You can say a fifty, which is is that he's going to be an everyday big leaguer, right? And you can put a pretty low risk on that because even though he was only an A ball. He profiles very well to be a everyday regular, or if you like him more, you could say if you think he's you know again if you want to go in the other direction you could say okay as a shortstop who ends up being an offensive shortstop who can handle position even with if you arm, think he's a shortstop 
who basically has a Billy Hamilton offensive ability with more walks. You know. Then you give him a higher grade, but the risk goes up too Correct. because there's much less certainty about him being able to do that. Top numerical grade, JJ. No 80s in the book. Still only had 180, and we wish it had been Mike Trout, but it was Bryce Harper. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple 75s in the book. So yep. I think there are two 75s with Byron Buxton and Chris Bryant. Yep. So pretty sure they both got 75s. Uh, we're proud of the handbook. Uh, definitely, uh, I wouldn't even say it's a labor of love. It's a labor of work. <laughs> so, it was a labor. It's of a work. labor of. Uh, it's a labor of labor. Yeah, but um, we do. I mean, we do love it. But it does. No it, it it does. You you wake up when it's gone, and you go, wait, that's not hanging over our head anymore. Correct. Um, so uh, now the college preview is hanging over my head. I was gonna say it's a, it's. I, I do. The the best way to put it is is like I, I hope people realize and it, you know I, people do because they enjoy it like. It is a labor-intensive process. It takes a whole lot of work to really to try to accurately relay uh, essentially scouting reports on the top 30 players and to get the right 30 players for each for all 30 organizations. It's not easy. It's not easy. Uh, I mean, it, it is, is fun. Like, it is but fun, it is not but easy. like it's funny. Like the top tens. I don't want to say that's easy. It's easy. But it is easy. It's easy. It, that's the fun. That is the fun part. I, reporting I, reporting on number 30 the same way you report on number one, that's hard. That's that is the hard. Part, that is the part where it gets... You'll forgive me for boasting a little bit, but that's a separator. Nobody else does what we do. And that's a separator. And I love that there are more prospect rankers and writers out there than ever before. I respect it. But 30 deep, uh, I blame Jim Cavalis for making us go 30 deep. But when you go 30 deep, you need to report number 30 as well as you report number one. You don't write him as long because he doesn't deserve it. But you need to write up. You need to have well, as much information really on number thirty as you do but on number to one. Not that, but and you to rate thirty, you were you know you, you gotta know, have again. that on forty-five guys basically. Mm-hmm. And the thing about try it is doing it, that for the Angels, <laughs> like JJ had to last year but, when they when they didn't have forty-five guys in their own minds. But I, and we have had we have had times before. I love it when you're talking to a team and they're like thirty. Yeah, you know, but. One of the reasons we like going that far, and one of the reasons it's important is, is it's why I love going back to these old baseball guys. Yeah. That what we're trying Can't to do... Can't predict ball, that's why. But, but we're also what we're trying to do, uh, this is my pitch I make for the Prospect Handbook, and I know people have it, you know, maybe you buy it and you only use it for fantasy purposes, and at the end of the year, you're done with it. For me, one of the things I love about it is it's, it's also a time capsule. Yeah. And... With the thing about a time capsule is that it is great to me to go back and look what was the industry thinking about this player 10 years ago. I love that aspect of it. You know, what was it? I mean, it's funny, but like, again, I've written up Jorman Rodriguez now on seven different handbooks. (laughs) He's been at the top five. He's dropped down. He's climbed back up. But... You put it all together, and essentially it's this small biography of the career of Jorman Rodriguez, the Reds outfielder who's still only like 23 years old. Do it for Dylan Batances. Go mm-hmm. over Dylan Batances. If you're a subscriber, go to BaseballAmerica.com, plug in Dylan Batances on our player finder, and then go to the bottom and see how often he was ranked. And you're going to see in there how often we wrote about this is a devastating curveball. This guy throws in the upper 90s. This guy has two premium pitches that are scraping the top of the scouting scale. And he did it last year. 
He finally put it together. It took him a while. He was drafted out oh, of high school in 2006. He had Tommy John. At some at one point, we said this is a potential front of the rotation ace. At other points, we said this guy is Daniel Cabrera. He's never going to get it. But like you said, you can go through the whole career of him as an amateur, and you can see why the success he had last season meant so much to so many people, both in the Yankees organization and people outside the organization who are New York baseball people and who saw this kid come up through high school, know this guy, believe in him as a person, and we're so happy to see his success. And, and I love the fact that you can do that through the handbook. Now be, this is our 15th edition of the, of the book. And, and the thing I love with that also is, is that, I mean, again, my goal for us is, is that and it, we never hit it 100%, but when the year's over and you look at pretty much say, okay, let's look at, any, let's look at the starting pitchers you know, who weren't horrendous, and let's look at the position players who play, you know, everyday players. It's my goal that when you look at it, every one of them has was in a was in a prospect handbook. And again, yeah. we we we're as long as uh, Jose Quintana, as long as Jose oh, yeah. is kicking around, we're not going to have a hundred percent. Garrett Jones is about to edge out, you know, as far as so that was as far as position players. That's been a guy who's always been, you know, we we didn't have we had him as best power in the Braves organization one year, but. Uh, but we did not. He never ranked as a top thirty guy. I'm not even sure Jose Quintana was even in a depth chart. He may not have been in a depth chart. That was uh, pretty great pro scouting by the White Sox and a case of an organization in the Yankees that didn't know what they had. This is an organization. <laughs> good sidebar here. Uh, I've talked about this with Josh Norris. I've talked about this with Damon Oppenheimer. I've talked about it with Mark Newman. It's an organization that historically has won with left-handed aces, JJ. And there was a left-handed ace they had in their own system, and they gave him away for nothing. Nothing as a minor league free agent. You want to know why the Yankees haven't been in the playoffs for two years in a row? That's why. They don't even know their own talent. That's another example of how they sign pitchers. I think they're actually pretty good at developing pitchers. But something at the top of that organization does not allow them to turn their own homegrown pitching talent into big league pitchers that help them win. Again, It's been going on for 15 years. And I think part of it is is part of the difficult – I, I, this is not a. This is not an excuse, and it's not. How a, do we get here? No, because anyway, but it's but it's not even an excuse, and I don't think it's like it justifies it anyway. But part of the problem is is that in New York, we saw this. We're seeing a version of this in Boston, though, too. When you're trying to win, yeah, and you have young pitchers, it's really hard to figure out. Boston has seven guys who you could say you could make. Who are double A? Let's say five. Five guys before they traded. Before they traded, they had five guys at least, and I think you could go seven. Let's say five at double A AA or triple A, who were intriguing pitching prospects. Yeah. But the problem is, is if you're trying to win, you can't say we're going to give you a solid 15 starts to figure it out. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, that, that hurts. It does hurt. The Yankees never had that kind of depth, but there are a lot of Yankees expatriates. Whether it's Tyler Clipper or Phil Hughes, or going down the line who've had a lot of success elsewhere. And Quintana's a great example. I never bring him up in that uh, conversation, and I should. So I don't think we're going to be talking about Jose Quintana for the Hall of Fame one day, but we did talk about it, and we didn't even put him in the uh, in the handbook either. He, he wasn't germane to either of these really in some ways, but uh, it was a fun uh, way to end the podcast. Uh, that was a fun podcast, JJ. Enjoyed it. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the download. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another Baseball America podcast later this week. I think we have a little JJ and the Bear podcast. Yep. So until then, so long, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.